Okay. Well, let's uh, let's turn to Genesis uh, chapter thirty-four and thirty-five. We finished uh, thirty-four last week, and we are uh, picking it up uh, today, uh, <clears throat> beginning chapter thirty-five. And we looked at uh, we looked at actually a good part of chapter 34 last week, and uh, uh, let me get let me get back over in Genesis instead of Exodus. It may be a little easier for me to teach this lesson. <laughs> but uh, I think actually we picked it up with about verse eight and went down through the end of end of chapter 34 uh, and what we looked at last week and. Uh, so before we read today's passage, let's go back and kind of look down through those verses and and uh, refresh our minds so we kind of remember where we are in the story and tell me what you remember from last week's lesson. And if you don't start responding, I'm going to start telling you granddaddy stories here. So. Oh, well, that's <laughs> Yeah, right. It was interesting in the uh, proposing circumcision, uh, and I didn't really thought about uh-huh. things you mentioned, but uh, you mentioned that uh, there was a problem offering circumcision to a pagan people. Mm-hmm. They're using a sacred and holy practice of the bargaining tool. Mm-hmm. And what's the significance of that? Why is that important? What do we learn from that? It's pertaining to things of God, really. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, in a way, it's like baptism for a Christian is as another order. Sure, yeah. Yeah. It's a sign that they were God's people, and those were not all God's people. Sure, sure. It's, it's taking it's taking things that God has set aside as sacred, as holy, as sanctified to Himself, and it's profaning them and just using them for our own carnal purposes, or our own carnal desires. And yeah, your example of of someone who's not saved, who's baptized, is is really profaning baptism. Uh, someone who's not saved taking communion is profaning communion. Uh, and and even I think even going to church now, it's not that unsaved people shouldn't go to church, but if some if an unsaved person is going to church simply to to put on a show or to to uh, deceive or to to get in good with somebody, maybe with a proposed mate, somebody they want to marry or or maybe for business advantage or whatever, they go to church. They're they're profaning things that are sacred to us. The the fellowship of uh, Christian fellowship uh is is being profaned by that kind of thing. And so it's a pretty serious thing. To take that idea a couple of steps further, uh, I've had conversations with folks about musicians in the worship service. And I've had people tell me, well, it doesn't really matter. You're just playing an instrument. You don't really even have to be a Christian. Because you're just, you know, you're just playing a musical instrument and 
the musical instrument is, you know, is negative, is, uh, you know, not mm-hmm. positive or negative, mm-hmm. but kind of neutral. And, yeah. But my point was, we're leading worship, and the way that I play the musical instrument has an impact upon that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'm always puzzled by churches that feel the liberty to go out and hire, uh, you know, because they want the best possible music, and they're certainly to be commended for wanting uh, high-quality music, but but uh, at what price do we get that high-quality music? Do we go out and hire musicians who don't know the Lord and who don't love the Lord and expect them to come in and help participate and, and contribute to our worship? I, I, yeah, I agree with you on that, Jim. I well, because seeing them on their Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What other things did we talk about last week? We talked about Jacob and his profound leadership. (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, we're going to see another side of Jacob today. But but uh, yeah, he's so passive here. He creates a he creates a leadership vacuum. He creates a he actually creates a a moral vacuum in which uh, his son Simeon and Levi then are free to act. And you really have to wonder what would have happened in this situation had had Jacob really kind of grabbed the bull by the horn, so to speak, to use a cliche, and had really exercised some leadership and some direction. And this whole disaster with Shechem, at least the second part of the disaster, could have been perhaps avoided or may have turned out completely differently if Jacob had exercised the leadership that he was that he was really responsible to exercise. You know that in the verse uh, is kind of puzzling. In verse five, it says that the sons were out in the field and Jacob kept silent until they came in. Mm-hmm. I said he could just as well have said he just kept silent the whole time. Well, it sure seems that way, doesn't it? Doesn't he, was, he said something. Yeah. Something that we, don't we don't have any idea what he did. Yeah. Yeah. And that's pretty pointed. With as much with as much uh, attention as the narrative gives to what other people said and what Simeon and Levi said and what Shechem said and what Hamor said, at no point does he say anything about what Jacob said. And, and it's like by his silence, uh, by the silence of the narrator about Jacob, he's trying to tell us something about Jacob's passivity, which is really, really troubling. And then when he does say something there from verse 30, he says, you brought trouble on me. Yeah. You know, that's pretty self-centered, it seems like. Uh, I don't know. I'm not really sure what's makeable. Yeah. Well, some commentators point that out, that that what seems to bother him at this point is the implications on him and his household, uh, more so the spiritual dimensions. It does it does seem then by the time we get to Genesis 49 and he and he pronounces what we call the blessings on his 12 sons. And when he addresses that issue in Genesis 49, it seems like his perspective is a little little more balanced there. But yeah, at this point, it, it, it makes you wonder. They're in the very end, they said, well, they defiled our sister. But if you go back and look what they did to the women there, they plundered the whole city. It's almost like <coughs> payback times a hundred. Yeah. Somehow justified. Yeah. <coughs> Completely out of out of balance with what was what was called for. I, you know, and, and, I, and I'll be honest with you, I don't know exactly what should have been done. Uh, and Scripture doesn't really tell us exactly what should have been done in this circumstance. It's not like the, not like the people of Shechem were Israelites and so they could be dealt with like the sons of Israel. So, 
uh, you know, when we get into the law, there are specific things laid down for how you deal with this kind of a situation. And I, I don't know if those would have applied in this situation or not. So I don't, I can't say dogmatically what I, what I know they should have done. I can think of some things that I think might have been appropriate. Uh, I don't know what they should have done, but it's very clear. The scripture is pretty, pretty clear in implying that what they did do was was wrong. It was destructive. It was overboard. Uh, and uh, and ultimately, not only are they going to pay a price for that, but even their descendants after them are going to pay a price for that. That's true. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard you say two or three times, and nobody else in here has ever, you know, don't really know what he should have done. He just should have done. Well, maybe while he was contemplating what he should have done, which may have been the right thing, his sons just got out of control. Well, that's a good point, yeah. It's, it's possible that maybe he was working on it, yeah. You know, I think he would have known what was going on, but yeah. Well, he, it's, it seems pretty obvious he had to know that they had made this counteroffer and that they had offered circumcision to the pagans. It seems like he would have had to have known that. He, I think it's pretty clear he did not know what they intended to do, uh, that it was a, a ploy on their part. So, But, uh, yeah, we, we have to be a little careful in what we say about Jacob because we don't know for conclusively uh, exactly what was going on with Jacob. So, One thing I would like to know, which I... There's probably some commentators who suggested uh, it says in 29, verse 29, it took the little ones and their wives and captured them. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, well, what, you know, what do you do, you know? When you have all these wives and kids. Yeah. 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 Does, does anybody, you know, uh, what is suggested or they ever pop I don't know if they ever pop up later. Uh, <coughs> no. Uh, Several commentators, maybe all the commentators I read, when we get in chapter 35, assume they're still with them when they move on to Bethel. But that's immediately afterwards. Uh, I did go. I did go back uh, to uh, to uh, later in Genesis. I was uh, just because that question was roaming around or rolling around in my mind. I went back and, and looked at the story of the uh, of the the movement of the children of Israel to Egypt when Joseph brings the children of Israel down to Egypt to see because I remembered it had mentioned seventy in total, sixty six actually coming out of the land of Canaan, but it mentions uh, it mentions a total of seventy people. So I wanted to know does that include the Shechemites or not? And uh, so I went back and I read that passage, and it's pretty clear that that number seventy that go from from uh, Canaan down to Egypt uh, actually only includes uh, Jacob and his immediate descendants. So, so there's no real indication. Did they go to Egypt with him or not? We, re- we really don't know what happens with him. Uh, we know, of course, that people were often traded and sold into slavery and all that kinds of thing. And, and uh, so we don't know. We really don't know what happened with them. But I do think they have some bearing on the story today because it's, it seems reasonable to assume they're still with them uh, when we encounter the things that we encounter today. But how long they were with them, I don't know. And what they did with them. Did they marry those women? You know, <laughs> did they adopt those children? Those are all questions we really don't have an answer to. Do we have any idea? Because when it says city, I picture in my mind, you know, Norman. Yeah, yeah. But obviously it wasn't. No, no. It, presumably it was a small city. <clears throat> Uh, it included more than just Hamor and his descendants, uh, apparently. But it, uh, you know, I think most people assume it was probably a fairly small, small city. 
In fact, it's kind of interesting. It doesn't even call Hamor the king. It calls him the prince. So uh, in some of the cities in that, time, in, in that period of time, the ruler was referred to as a king. And we have that with the five cities of, of, uh, uh, of the uh, Pentapolis down there around the southern end of the Dead Sea during the story of Abraham. We talked about the king of Salem. And, and those, so those, those somewhat larger cities, their rulers were called kings. But this, in this case, he's called a prince. I, I get the impression it was a relatively small city, but it was still a very significant massacre that took place. Do you think, I mean, I know we don't have to teach our kids to do bad, but these are the older guys that were around their father back in his days of deception, or before his time when he spent with God and changed, whereas you think about Joseph hanging around his dad, Joseph was a little guy, mm-hmm. probably spent more time with his dad after his dad had his encounter and wrestled that well, it's yeah, it's hard not to remember the adage like father, like son, isn't it? Uh, I assume there's some of that, but I also assume, as I as I said uh, when I was when we were looking at the passage earlier, that that I think probably just the fact that they grew up for ten years around Shechem, and so I think it's a combination of. The influence of their father and a combination of the uh, also the influence of of the people around them, the Shechemites and what they were like. So uh, the Canaanites. So so I think it's a combination of those things. But yeah, I, I, I don't have any question that some of Jacob's personality and Jacob's uh, uh, <coughs> Jacob's deceptiveness and things like that probably were things that that his children picked up on. Unfortunately, our children are good at picking up on on some of the lesser qualities in our lives. Yeah, Rick. It's interesting too when you talked about what, what, what really was the difference between what God did later on to them. During the conquest? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, in uh, Genesis 49 when Jacob was blessing my yeah. sons it talked about Simeon and Levi first uh, to be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. So that even though they did the same thing, it was done in a Yeah, and I think that that's an important distinction for us to make is that there's a there there's a world of difference morally between what Simeon and Levi do and what the children of Israel do under under the divine direction of God as they as they come in and take conquest of the land. And uh, and and that is that's the point we were trying to make last week when we talked about that. There really is a there really is a complete distinction there. Simeon and Levi are acting out of uh, what are the two words that uses there in chapter forty nine? Those are good. Fierce and cruel. Fierce and cruel anger. Okay, so they're act they're acting out of a personal animus. They're acting out of a personal uh, hatred and a personal spite. And and uh, and the, and and they're going completely overboard. They're 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 punishing people who had nothing to do with the crime. Okay. When we get to the conquest of Canaan and God comes in, uh, he he brings the children of children of Israel back after 400 years in Egypt because by this time the wickedness of the of the land is full up. We have, as it says in other places uh, in regard to other things, the the cup of their iniquity, so to speak, is has been filled up. 
And now it's time for God to act in judgment. So in the conquest, it's not the children of Israel executing judgment. It's God executing judgment through the children of Israel. And the reason that he acts in the way he does is because their wickedness is, is filled or complete. And so there is a, there's a marked distinction between what happens during the conquest and it, and it, and it happens as a direct uh, in response to direct revelation from God. He tells them, I want you to go in. I want you to take this city. This is what I want you to do. And they respond to his direct, explicit command. And that's completely distinct from this, from this vengeance uh, that Simeon and Levi uh, participate in here in, uh, at Shechem 400 years earlier, more than 400 years earlier. But, so, Okay, well... Let's let's go on. We could talk all week about all night, all day about last week's lesson. But let's go on and look at the first uh, first few verses of chapter thirty five, verse, verses one through eight. We want to look at today, and and this this part of the story falls right on the heels of what has well, the things we have just been talking about. So in uh, chapter thirty five, verse one, it says, "Then God said to Jacob." Arise, go to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and let us arise and go to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the things which were in their ears, the rings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak, which was near Shechem. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities that were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. He built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and she was buried below Bethel under the oak. It was named Arlen Bakuth. OK. Well, um, just in kind of some preliminary thoughts as we begin to look at chapter 35, uh, <clears throat> chapter 35 is. Is uh, we might we might think of it as a transitional chapter, uh, not so much transitional in the narrative as it is transitional in the life of Jacob. Okay, uh, so what we have in chapter 35 really is we have his itinerary through Canaan. Okay, so we start out in Shechem, and by the time we get to the end of chapter 35. We're going to be back down at Hebron. We're going to be back down by the Oaks of Mamre. You're familiar with Hebron and the Oaks of Mamre. That's where, uh, that's where Abraham spent so much of his time. The Oaks of Mamre is where uh, God appeared to him before the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, etc. So uh, by the end of chapter 35, Jacob will be back at Hebron, back at Mamre. Okay? So it's the story of his progression through Canaan from Shechem to Bethel to Bethlehem and ultimately uh, to uh, to Mamre or to Hebron, and and so it really is kind of the story of this transition in his life. And what is significant in chapter 35 is that we encounter four distinct burials in chapter 35. The first bur- first two burials we'll encounter today in today's lesson, and the first one is the burial of the idols. 
when he takes the idols and he hides them there under the yoke at Shechem. Okay? And the word hide there can be translated also burial. Some translations translate it buried them under the yoke. So there's the first burial. The second burial is the burial of Deborah, Rebecca's nurse. And we'll try to talk about that today if we can get that far. Okay. And then the third burial will be the burial of Rachel, Jacob's second wife. And she will be buried near Bethlehem. And then the fourth burial will be finally the burial of Isaac. He lives to be 180 years old and dies there at Mamre. And, uh, and he's buried there. He and Esau bury him there. And we encounter that at the end of chapter. So it's really chapter 35 really is, is a chapter that's kind of closing the book on a, on a period in Jacob's life and preparing us for kind of a new story. So even though we are, we are really approaching the end of the Taladot that talks about uh, all about Jacob, we still have another kind of epic or period in his life. And that would be the period from when he, when he buries his father until ultimately he goes into Egypt and dies uh, there in Egypt. But... Uh, so, so we're closing this, this period in his life and it's like the narrator is trying to make an issue to us because he focuses so much on these burials, these points of closure in the life of Jacob. And so it's like in chapter 35, Jacob is putting a lot of things behind him. And he's putting Peyton Aram behind him. And he's putting behind him that whole sordid story of the stealing of the birthright. And he's moving on now to a new, new part of his story, a new part of his life. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Now, we've talked a lot about Shechem. We've talked about the significance of Shechem. We've talked about Jacob coming to Shechem and, and staying there for so long and the consequences of him staying there so long. The thing that we, the thing that we're seeing about Shechem, and we're going to be talking a little bit about Shechem and Bethel today. The, the the thing that we need to understand about Shechem is Shechem is not a destination. Shechem is a portal. It's a it's a place you have to go through to get to where you want to go, and it was never intended to be a destination. And the problem in Jacob's life is he fell into the trap of letting Shechem be his destination. Okay? And, and so we come now to this point in Jacob's life where God, in order to uproot Jacob from, from this place that he was never intended to be and to get him to where he intends him to be and wants him to be, which is at Bethel, in order for him to do that, God has to allow all this horrible stuff to happen, to wake Jacob up and to realize, I've got to get out of this place. Okay? So, so Shechem, as we've talked about, it's the, place of, it's the place of commitment. It's the place of decision. It's the place of leaving the past behind. But, but if you come to Shechem and you never move on, you've really never left the past behind. It's still there weighing you down. Okay? And and so what we have here is we have Jacob hung up at Shechem. He's never moving past this place of of putting away of the world, so to speak. And and because of that, he he stays in Shechem, he raises his family in Shechem, and then he has this terrible tragedy with Dinah. And, and then of course the subsequent consequences, the 
uh, the, the whole thing with Simeon and Levi and the massacre. And you have all this ugly stuff happen. And the reason this stuff happens is, be, is because he's not moved on to Bethel. And Bethel is the place where he needs to get to. Okay. And in, in, in our lives... You know, I've tried to make this parallel as we, since we've been talking about Abraham and all the way through. I've tried to make this parallel between Shechem and, and Bethel and then ultimately Beersheba and Hebron in that area down in the south, the Negev. Uh, that Shechem is this place where we're, we're leaving the past behind. It's the place of commitment. It's the place of decision. It's the place of choice. It's the place of forsaking the past. And that Bethel represents that place of a deeper walk with God, a deeper walk with Christ, a place of worship. And, and as I was thinking about that the last couple of days or so, I was thinking maybe, a, maybe another way we could say it is, is Bethel is the place of Christ-likeness. Shechem is the place where we say no to the world. Shechem is the place where we deny the world and we put the world behind us. But if we stop there, we have stagnated. And what he is calling us to ultimately is he's calling us to go on to Bethel. He's calling us to go on to Christ's likeness. And there really is, I think, a difference between those two places in our lives. There's a difference between that that portal that we come to, that, that place of transition that we come to and we say, I'm going to leave the world behind. I'm going to forsake the things of the world. And Bethel, which is, the, which is that place where we are, we are not thinking in terms of what we are leaving behind, but we're thinking in terms of that which we are seeking and desiring. And Bethel represents that. Bethel represents Christ. Bethel represents the image of Christ and the likeness of Christ. And that's what we really are seeking. And so Shechem is just a portal to that. Shechem is a necessary place we have to go through to get there. But if we stop at Shechem, and I've seen a lot of people stop there. I've stopped there at times in my life. If we stop at Shechem, we'll never get to Bethel. And so the problem is Jacob has stopped at Bethel and all this ugly stuff has happened in his or excuse me, stopped at Shechem and all this ugly stuff has now transpired in his life because he has waited there for so long, for so many years, possibly as long as 10 years there at Shechem without moving on. And now all this ugly stuff happens. And then the story opens up here in chapter 35 in verse 1 where God comes to him and speaks to him and he says, I want you to, I want you to rise and go to Bethel and live there and they make an altar for me. And what what strikes me about this is is that in in God's call to Bethel there, and I and I, and I refer to it as God's call to Bethel. It really is a commandment. <laughs> He's really telling him what to do. But in another sense, it's a call. And I don't know that we can make much distinction between those two things, between God's call and God's commandment. But I like to think of it as a call because because when I see God coming to Jacob here in verse one and speaking to Jacob and saying, "Okay, Jacob, now it's time to move on to Bethel. I just see a lot of grace there. You know, God isn't saying God doesn't say here, at least there's no indication that God said to Jacob, well, Jacob, you blew it. 
If you if you you know if you just gone to Bethel nine years ago, none of this would have happened. You know, there's none of that. But rather, God just comes to him and says, "Okay, Jacob, there's something better for you, and it's Bethel, and it is that place where God appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau." And so here is Jacob, and he's just had this horrific disaster happen in his family with the rape of Dinah and then this and then his sons engaging in this horrific massacre where they kill everybody in a city. And he really is now really afraid because typically in that culture, the response of the people around and, and he comes out there and the things that in the rebuke that he gave to his sons uh, typically, the response in the culture was, boy, the other cities would get up, they'd get an army, and they'd come after you. And we have a good example of that with Abraham in the, in the War of the Kings back in Genesis 14. Those kings come down in, and they, they conquer those cities, and they take her, and they take, they plunder, and they take uh, Lot, and they take Lot's relatives, Lot's family, and they go carting them off. Well, the reason Abraham gets involved is because uh, because of Lot and because of Lot's family. That's why he gets involved. But there are other people also who are allied with Abraham who go off chasing after these kings and ultimately chase them down and, and, and defeat them. Okay? That's the typical response in the culture. So Jacob has a lot of reason to be worried that there are other people in this vicinity who really don't think very nicely about what, what my sons have just done. And so there's a good possibility they're going to get an army together and they're going to come in and they're going to destroy us because they don't want people like us living in this land. So he's afraid. And in his fear, God comes to him and says, remember another time when you were afraid? There was a time when you were fleeing from your brother Esau and you went to Bethel and at Bethel I appeared to you. Well, now it's time to go back to Bethel. You need to go back to Bethel. And you'll notice there's four verbs there. He wants him to arise. He wants him to go. He wants him to live. And he wants him to build. Going to Bethel is not a passive thing. Attaining Christ's likeness is not something that just happens. It's something we work at. Now, I don't mean work at in the sense of works, but, but it is not a thing that we can just kind of passively set around and we're just someday going to wake up and be like Christ. Being like Christ is something that we've got to arise and go to and live there and worship there. And, and so God comes to Jacob and He says, okay, Jacob, if you want to get to Bethel, there's some things you're going to have to do. And if you want to experience again what you experienced before at Bethel, which is the presence of God in the midst of your fear, then you need to get up and you need to act and you need to move and you need to go there and you need to live there and you need to worship there. You need to build an altar. Now, going back and just thinking about this contrast between Shechem and Bethel, I was thinking, uh, I was thinking about this yesterday and I was thinking about Romans chapter 12, verse 2. How many of you know what Romans 12.2 says? What's it say? Okay, can you give me the whole verse? Or at least the first part of it? 
Okay, you're giving me uh, part of the verse. Okay, okay. And that's the part I want to focus on. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind in order that you may prove, etc., etc., etc. Okay. And, and the thing that, that strikes me about that verse, and, and I've talked about this before, and if we ever get out of Genesis into Romans, I'll talk about it again. Uh, but one of the things that strikes me about Genesis, or Romans chapter 12, verse 2, is that when God tells us not to be conformed to the world, what is the alternative he presents to us? As opposed to being conformed to the world, he wants us to be transformed. Okay? And the thing that strikes me about that is that oftentimes we think, I think we, particularly as younger Christians, oftentimes younger Christians think this way, and maybe we still think this way. Oftentimes we think that to not be conformed to the world means we need to be nonconformists. But that's not what Romans 12:2 says. In other words, I think that I look at the world and it's this way, and so I just kind of look and then I draw a picture over here of everything that's opposite of this, and this is the way I will be. <laughs> and so I seek to be a nonconformist with the world. And I think if I successfully become a nonconformist, I am therefore spiritual. But that's not what Romans 12.2 says. Romans 12.2 says, don't let, uh, to put it in, I think, the Phillips translation, says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. <laughs> and the word there is actually the word from which the word we get schematic, like a schematic drawing. You've all seen electrical schematic drawings. You know, most of us can't understand them. You know, they've got these lines and wires, and there's this very defined way that things are to be organized, okay? And he's saying, don't let yourself be organized the way the world is organized, but rather be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. There's a transformation process that takes place. So instead of looking at the world and trying to make myself just the opposite of everything the world is, so if the world wears red, I wear blue, you know, and if the world goes to this store, then I go to this store, and if the world buys this object, then I buy this object. <laughs> or if the world worships this way, then I just, you know, I find some opposite way to worship and I worship this way. Instead of doing that, what I do is I focus on Christ. And as I'm focused on Christ, my mind is transformed and I become like Christ. And the striking thing we see about Jesus as we read through the Gospels, the, the, thing, the, the paradox of Christ is that in so many areas, Jesus is just like the world. But that in so many other areas, he's so unlike the world. And to him, it's really not important whether or not he looks like the world. So the Pharisees, they were all uptight. Why were they uptight with Jesus? Aside from some of the things he taught. They were uptight because he would do what? Eat and drink with sinners, right? And he'd go to their parties. And he'd drink their wine. And he'd eat their food. Okay? And they, that just drove them up the wall. Okay? Because he was being, in their mind, conformed to the world. But Jesus wasn't being conformed to the world. Jesus was living out the will of his Father. And if that meant eating and drinking with sinners, it meant eating and drinking with sinners. And if it meant going to the cross, it meant going to the cross. And, and as I was thinking through that in, in, in relationship to this whole Shechem-Bethel thing, what struck me is, is I, I know I've lived this experience in my own life and I see it today a lot 
and and I see it a lot, particularly with young people, is is the tendency to define my Christianity by what I am not. You know, it's that old adage, I don't smoke, drink or chew and I don't go with girls who do, you know, that type of thing. You know, And I grew up in that type of an environment. OK, I grew up in an environment in which, you know, you. You, 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 you didn't go to this place. You didn't go to that place. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. You didn't play cards. You didn't dance. You didn't go to movies. You did, all the things you didn't do. And if you didn't do all those things, you were a good Christian. And it's interesting that that's exactly the problem that Shechem's son, or excuse me, that Jacob's sons have. Simeon and Levi. Is they're living there in, in the region of Shechem and they think because they're circumcised, they're really different than the world. But in reality, when push comes to shove, we see they live just like the world lives, right? They respond just like the way the world responds. If I define my spirituality by what I've forsaken, by what I've given up, I'm going to fall into the trap of actually becoming like the world not in those areas. Maybe I don't go some places they go. And maybe I don't eat or drink some of the things they eat or drink. But those are all superficial. But in the more crucial areas, the areas of pride and self-sufficiency and judgmentalism, in those areas, I become like the world. And so I begin to define my spirituality the way the Pharisee, the, the Pharisee whom Jesus described praying with next to the public and says, God, I thank you I'm not like them. I thank you I'm not like those people over there and they do this and, you know, and, and we can do that even not only with unbelievers, but even with other Christians. I thank you, God, I'm not like other Christians. I thank you I'm not like those Christians and they do this and they do that, but I don't do those things. But it may be true I don't do those things, but the question is, am I really like Christ? Have I gone on to Bethel? Has he become the center of my faith? And is he what defines me? And the problem with Shechem's sons is, is they, they looked at their circumcision and they thought we're different than them. But in reality, they weren't different and they ended up being even more violent. And Paul, Paul reprimands the Corinthians because in, in some ways the Corinthians were living sin greater than the people in Corinth. And yet they thought they were different. God is really calling you and I to something greater than just defining ourselves by what we're not. Now, that, that's not to downplay the significance and the importance of Shechem. As I said, it's a necessary portal. We've got to go through Shechem. There are some things we've got to bury. There are some things we've got to leave behind. But if we stay in Shechem, what have we gained? And so God is saying to Jacob, okay, Jacob, it's time to go on to Bethel. That place where I came to you and I spoke to you when you were fleeing from your brother Jacob, from your brother Esau. And then we see some really encouraging stuff in Jacob. What do they do? Something I think is kind of bizarre, actually. I would have thought this would have happened a long time ago. He asked for the household idols. And, you know, 
Does that, does that not puzzle you to think, well, now, he's doing this now? What if you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if it puzzles me. I noticed it. <laughs> I noticed it. Okay, maybe yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a good point. What were you going to say, Rick? I thought, oh, I thought, <laughs> you got my problem. <laughs> if I don't get it said now, I'll forget. <laughs> okay, well. Excuse me? Okay, uh, yeah, I think some of them were, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But what stands out to you about Jacob here? I mean, aside from the fact that, okay, he hasn't done this maybe when he should have done it. He's kind of taking charge. He's taking charge! Jacob is finally showing some leadership! When it finally comes down and God says, Okay, Jacob, you messed it all up. And of course, God didn't say that. He just left it implied, you know. You, you've got a mess here and you need to get out of town. You need to get out of Dodge, man. It's time to move to Bethel, you know. And Jacob takes charge. But he doesn't just say to his family, Okay, we're going to move to Bethel. What does he do? Okay, before that. Yeah, yeah. He shows spiritual leadership. He doesn't just say, we're going to go to Bethel. He says, listen people, we can't go to Bethel the way we are. We've got to go to Bethel. He says, and I want to go to Bethel, I want to build an altar there. He says, where God answered me in my distress. Now that's an... That's an interesting thing that he says there because we've had no indication in the narrative up to this point that Jacob was crying out to God when he left home. But now we find out he was. We find out that when he was on the lamb, when he was running from home, when he was running from Esau, he was calling out to a God he'd apparently never prayed to before. And one of the things that's significant to him about his first stop at Bethel was that God answered him. That God heard his prayer. And God came to him. And so he knows this God. He's encountered this God. And he realizes that his family is not ready to meet this God. And so he says, there's some things we need to go. We're going to Bethel, folks. And he takes the bull by the horns. He grabs... The, he grabs ownership of the holiness issue, which he has not done up to this point. And he says, you've got to put away your foreign gods. And you need to wash yourselves and you need to put on new garments because we're going to Bethel. Now, Bethel is 30 miles away uphill, 1,000 feet. They're going to put on their garments before they leave. It's going to take them several days to get there. Those garments are going to be dirty by the time they get there. But the significance of the washing and the garments is it's ceremonial, of course. It's just a it's it's representative of the cleansing, the inner cleansing. Okay. But the the issue with the idols, as as David pointed out, it's very likely, and most commentators assume that some of these foreign gods that they have are ones they picked up in Shechem. They're going in and they're looting all these houses. And, you know, you see these gold statues and stuff. And if for no other reason than they're gold, you grab them and you take them, you know. And you, you run with them, you know, with everything else you're grabbing, you know. And so possibly 
uh, some of these idols were ones they had picked up in Shechem. But where else have they picked up idols? Rachel was sitting on one. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. They've got Laban's household idols with them still. And we talked about it clear back then. We talked about the story. I said, it'll come up again, folks. <laughs> it'll come up again because you can't carry these idols with you. But, but what eventually it doesn't become an issue. And it's become an issue now. It's a barrier to Bethel. Can't get to Bethel carrying these other gods. And you've got to set those gods aside. Now, we don't practice idolatry today, do we? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's really refined, isn't it? It's so refined, we don't even see it. You know, and oftentimes, we talk about the idolatry of things. We talk about our money or our houses or our cars or our things like that. And, and, and Paul is clear that those things can become our idols. But we can also make an idol out of an idea of God that isn't true. When we have in our mind an image of God that is not true, that's an idol. I don't want to, I don't want to appear cold or, or harsh or, or without understanding here, but, but I often hear, hear people talk about how oftentimes we view God in the way we viewed our fathers. And if our fathers were kind of scoundrels or whatever, Oftentimes we, we tend to view God as, you know, maybe if our fathers were cruel or something, then, then we can, he's kind, of our, he's kind of our earthly example of what God is like. And so we kind of imagine God like that. And I think that's true. I think we do that. And one of the, one of the things that oftentimes people who have had a father who's not been an ideal father have had to struggle with is what is God really like? Okay. And, and I understand that. And I understand that that is a struggle. But I think it's also important that we understand that if we think God is like our Father, we have an idol. Now, I had a great dad. I had a great dad. And he loved God. And he loved God till the night he passed away on his deathbed. And so I, I have a great dad but my God is greater than He is. My God is holier than He was, more righteous, more devout. And, and so, there are, there are ways that looking at my Father has helped me to understand God. But if I fall into the trap of thinking God is like my dad, I've got an idol. Or in any way that I have a picture of God that's different than the one that is revealed in Scripture, I'm guilty of idolatry. And I'm really never going to get to that Christ-likeness that I seek. I'm never really going to get to Bethel as long as I keep carrying that baggage of a God who is unlike the God of Scripture. And so they've got to put away these idols. They've got to bury them. And then they, they've got to wash themselves. They've got to cleanse themselves. They have to put away the idols of the world and they have to just put away all that filth and that dirt of the world. But what if they stop there? What if they bury their idols and wash their clothes and wash themselves and change their clothes and then just stayed in Shechem? 
What have they gained? You've got to go on to Bethel. We've got to seek the image of Christ. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, our minds have to be filled with Bethel. And so, God, it's with God, it was not enough that He arise, that He go, and that He live, but that He do what? Build an altar. you got to worship there. <laughs> and so, they travel to Bethel. And as they travel to Bethel, there is this terrible fear on all the cities around them of the sons of, of Jacob and his family. Okay? And this serves as God's kind of protective shield on them as they are in this time of vulnerability moving from Shechem to Bethel as they move that 30 miles to Bethel. And God just puts His shield and His protection over them. Now, as we read that, it's very easy to think, well, the reason they're afraid is because of what the what Jacob's sons have done. Well, to some degree that may be true, but the real issue here is that this is the fear of God. Now, in, uh, in uh, uh, my translation, it says, uh, as they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them. And, they, and the, my translation translates the Hebrew word there, uh, great terror, but that Hebrew word there is the word El. It's the same word that's translated many other places as God. <laughs> in fact, even later in this next verse, a couple of verses down, it's translated as God. So some translations translate this a God care, or the fear of God, or a fear from God. And the point I'm trying to make here is that, is that they're not just it's not just these cities are afraid because of what Simeon and Levi have done. These cities are afraid because God has put a fear in their hearts. And He has done this as a protective shield to protect His inheritance as it moves from Shechem to Bethel. This is God's protection over Jacob and over Jacob's descendants in spite of their sin, in spite of their folly, in spite of their delay, in spite of all their foolishness. God is still protecting and watching over them as they move forward. And then they come finally to Bethel. And they come to Bethel and Jacob then builds an altar. And he calls, the, and he calls this place what? El Bethel. Now, it's redundant. What does Bethel mean? House of God. And that's what he named it the first time he was there. Right? He was there the first time. He named it Bethel. House of God. Bethel. Now he comes the second time and he names it El Bethel. Why does he do that? 
You see, the first time he came, it says uh, back in chapter 28, it says he came to a certain place. It was just this nondescript place. To Jacob, it was just a place on the road as he was running from Esau. Okay, just another place. And he got there and he laid down and he went to sleep and he had a dream and God appeared to him and God spoke to him and God gave him all these promises. And when he got up, he took the rock, that he, the stone that he'd been using for a pillow and he set it up on its end and he made a memorial there. He, met, he put a marker there. And he said this, he said God was in this place and I did not know it. And so, to Jacob, this place that was nondescript the night before, just another place on the road, just another hotel to, to, to crash in on the road, and, 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 and that's all it is. It is now, it is now God's house. Because God was here and I didn't know it. And there's a lot of emphasis in Jacob's mind on this place. But now when he comes back, he doesn't erect a memorial. He will eventually, as we'll see next week. He doesn't erect a memorial, but he erects what? An altar. Because now he's worshiping God. In fulfillment of his vow. He said, God, you bring me back and you'll be my God. And so now he erects an altar and he worships God there. And now the focus of this place is not the place, but the God who made the place special. Now, that's not to say that it was wrong or there was something unspiritual about the place being significant to him. That, what, that was important. And that was an important commitment or important point in his spiritual odyssey for that place to become important because it was a place that he could come back to then. But ultimately, when he comes back to the place, he is now more mesmerized, if you will. He's more enraptured now, not with the place, as he is with the God who has sanctified this place. With the God who has made this place holy. You see, there are there are external things that we do in our lives and external things in our lives that serve to us as a reminder of God. Some of them have been instituted by God Himself. Baptism, the Lord's Supper. But there are other things that we do or we experience and they are somewhat external, but they serve to us as reminders. They serve to us when we encounter those things, and as I've said at other times, maybe it's a place in your life. Maybe it's a geographical location where something significant happened in your life and God met you or spoke to you or did something particularly important in your life. And I have places like that in my life. And when I go back to those places, I'm reminded of those events. And, and the significance of those tangible, real, material things that we have that remind us of God is that they... Is that they are tangible and they're physical. And in that sense, there really is nothing to them substantially, spiritually. But they, they serve as a catalyst to remind us of the reality. So when I take communion, there's nothing magical in the cup. There's nothing, nothing magical in the wine. There's nothing magical in the bread. It is not the body and blood of Christ. 
but it serves to draw my mind back to the cross, to a spiritual reality. And that's the importance of the place of Bethel. Is that it draws Jacob's mind back to a reality that is deeper and more significant than Bethel itself. But a reality that cannot be seen. But beyond that now, Jacob has grown to the point at which the greatness and the significance of the place, and it is great and it is significant and it will always be great and it will always be significant in Jacob's life and in our lives as well. But it has now been eclipsed by a greater awareness of God. And now when he comes back, he goes, El Bethel, God of the house of God. And this is what he worships. Well, we'll stop there and uh, we'll pick up next week with uh, Deborah's uh, death. And and this is another point in the transition and we'll just go on from there. Uh, so we'll look at that. But... But just to remember the things that we learned today. We've got to move past Shechem. We've got to be defined not by what we aren't, but by who we're becoming like. Okay? Next week we'll go on.